Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Yes, one second. I was talking. Episode 101. 101? 101. Okay. Yeah, we're taping this before that. But as the time that this is airing, we will have spoken in Atlanta and gotten a standing ovation or everybody walked out. We won't know. We'll update you after we've Man, are you delusional? actually spoken. <laughs> so. It'd be more likely a pig would fly by right now. Dude, we have you have to think positively. You have to get the okay, whole a small you pig. have to manifest. A very skinny pig flies. <laughs> Stop. Okay, so today's topic is one that I'm gonna start with our big failure. Is that when we started all of our programs back in 2015, we never really thought where should we start? We just kind of started with watching opioid stewardship in the clinic. And the reality is, is once we started doing addiction work in 16, we probably should have realized the patients existed in certain locations and we mm. should attack the patients where they're at. Yeah. And I think, you know, retrospectively that, that yeah, I mean, now I think when we go to communities, that's one of the things we talk about. First. I mean, we had approached our jails before we approached our, <laughs> before we approached our emergency department. Um, we do have a, have a big shout out to a physician in our emergency department in Little Falls, who got wavered to support this. He no longer works there, but he works in a different emergency department. And I cannot read your handwriting. Um, yeah, well, and, I mean, <laughs> but I think, anyway, he's still doing this and moving it to more communities. I was just sending her a note saying, hey, and, and I can't, we don't, we don't want this to be too long. I can't read your handwriting today. Anyway, so how big of an issue are opioids in the emergency department, Kurt? Well, they're pretty big. I mean, if you look at in the country, almost 3 million visits are opioid related per year. So, I mean, that's a lot. And actually, if you look at it, it's like 1.23% of all ED visits are opioids. And remember, this doesn't count all the different things that are alcohol or methamphetamine. We're talking strictly opioids. So if you look at all of addiction, it's probably 6 7%, I bet. But it's a lot of money. 66% of those went Medicare, Medicaid charges, um, $5 billion. That's more than I have. You think? So one in 80 visits to the ED were just opioid related. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a significant thing. And if we look at, you know, one of the things with population health is they want to kind of eliminate these visits to the ER that are avoidable. Well, and they're expensive. Like, why not have them established with somebody and have them, you know, live in their lives and avoiding the emergency department because nobody really likes to go to the ER. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that if you look at the visits over the last decade, it's doubled. The number of opioid-related. No, OUD. Well, related to OUD. Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, similar. I mean, that's... Doubled. If that's doubled, I mean, what are the rest of the opioids have done, you know? Quadrupled. It's a gazillion. So, it's interesting, though, because if you take those patients and you actually are able to identify them, like, that's the first, that's the first step. You have a patient mm. in front of you. You have to recognize an opioid use disorder, which isn't... Always easy. It isn't always easy, but it's also something you have to just at least be aware of and look for. 
the patients who were actually identified and started on buprenorphine in the ER, 42% lower rate of overdose. Yeah. And okay, if that's you, a lot. Yeah, and if you think about that, it's a it's really a 51% decrease in overdoses related to ED visits, right? A lot of them don't make it to the ED, sadly. And 31% lower healthcare costs than people who aren't started in the ER. Yes, but yet... Fewer than 20% of patients who need to receive buprenorphine actually get it. Yeah, and that's the big problem, is that we have ERs pumping people through, and they are not prescribing to these patients and not saving their lives. And there's been a lot of studies as to why. Um, what's the attitudes that kind of lead to this? And so there was actually one study um, about provider attitudes regarding buprenorphine that, that looked at 93 emergency department clinicians. 80% of them, this I think is a little high, it, it, my perception that this is high, but 80% of these 93 agreed that buprenorphine should be administered in the emergency department, but only about half of them were prepared to actually discuss it and prescribe it. Yeah. And that's kind of the attitude that I see it as, I think it should be done, I just don't really want to be the one to do it. Yeah. And I think what, what we have found and seen uh, anecdotally is that most of the people that are really interested in this tend to be younger. So, and the the study really showed that is that people that were out of practice just a few, out of residency a few years were much more likely to do that. Yeah. And it's, it's that whole, I think, attitude, not only on opioid use disorders being seen as a chronic disease, but a lot of things in, in life and society and in healthcare that the viewpoints of younger people, people just have different outlooks on things. Yeah. They're more likely to think that it, of it as a disease. Right. Whereas some of the older physicians and providers do not. So, so I think that's one of the things. Uh, they actually did a study, uh, and it was called Barriers and Facilitators to Clinical Readiness to Provide Emergency Department-Initiated Buprenorphine. And what they did is they looked at 268 ED physicians. Only nine of them were wavered out of those 268 in this system. So that, that is a paucity of people that are wavered. Paucity. A paucity. But yet, I don't understand how 56 of them felt competent to prescribe, but yeah, I mean, maybe you know, some felt that they could do it, they just didn't want to get wavered or didn't get wavered or well, whatever. And they must have known that, yeah, you can still do it without that, and we'll talk about that in a second, without the waiver. Right. But basically, they, a lot of them just felt that there was not a lot of formal training surrounding this, <clears throat> and they really didn't have that knowledge that they felt comfortable doing it. Right. So, you know, but why? Why are, where are all the barriers? And I think there's a ton of barriers. We're not going to go through my fun little quizzes, but there's a lot of people that have to be involved. Um, you know, the patient has to not have barriers. The provider has to not have barriers. Family members, nurses, social services, yada, yada, the list goes on. It goes on. But if you look at barriers from providers' point of view, and some of these we've kind of touched on is the lack of formal training. Yeah. You know, right now, at least primary care residencies get wavered or at least talk about it. But emergency department or emergency specialty residencies don't all do that. It doesn't seem like it. Or maybe we don't know. Well, Somebody should tell us. Right. Um, and, but I think it's that perception that it's outside of the, the emergency department, right? People think, well, that's not what we do here. But we look at this as an emergency. So I guess it'd be in the right place. Well, right. And, you know, limited knowledge, like... I think a lot of people think if you have an addiction, you need to go to treatment. You need to go to inpatient treatment. Like that's what you do for a person who's addicted. You just lock them up in some treatment. And so, you know, there's obviously limited resources there and people don't always know. And it's interesting that ERs where we have helped mentor all these communities around rural Minnesota to do buprenorphine suboxone, 
the ERs don't even know that they're doing it in the clinic. Sometimes, like, yeah. Which is right down the hall in yeah. a lot of cases. So, yeah. Or they just, it's just not on their list of things to do. So, so it is. And a lot of the barriers, of course, we deal with is, is patient shame. You know, this whole addiction is not a disease. Uh, patients that don't want to go to the emergency department because they don't know that there's help there. Right. Right. I mean, if you've got a big cut, you know that's where you go. If you have addiction and you're withdrawing, you don't know that that's available. Well, and then when you're talking about the education thing, you know, we just talked about the residency thing or getting trained, but then it's where you're getting support from your, you know, organization. Um, some providers felt that they should be compensated for their time, yet they're not compensated for their time to do ACLS and ATLS. Um, and then that's just the whole barrier of the waiver in general, which most people don't realize as an emergency department physician, you don't necessarily need. It's a good thing to get, yeah. but you don't necessarily need it. Yeah, the three-day rule, you can be prescribing it for three days consecutively for a patient over the weekend or a long weekend. So, And I love it because the the, the act that put this out there, the CARA Act, says yeah. it's because it's for a medical emergency, yeah. but yet people don't believe it's an emergency. Yeah, Just saying. and so they actually describe it as... In, in that care act is a medical emergency listing the things that, you know, the reasons you can do it, whether they're in the hospital or the ER and they're in withdrawal, you can do it. So you can do it. You can do it. Um, I just want to touch on that three day rule now because it's it kind of applicable here. So what that means right, is, that, take a break. is that the provider can administer or in the emergency department, hospital supply, give that dose of Suboxone cannot send the patient home with it, however, unless they are wavered. Patient can come back the next day, get another dose, come back the third day and get another dose. They just, again, cannot prescribe it. Correct. So it ends they up being a little... They can't send them out with a script. Correct. Um, it ends up being a little bit more tedious for all involved, but it is possible and it is better than doing nothing for these patients. Yeah, nothing seems like that wouldn't work. Well, it does to save their time, but not, I mean, I guess... Well, people have been doing nothing for a long time. And, and people I think, are dying. I think that we it hasn't worked yet. Okay. So, so anyway, what, another barrier is the time. Like, does this really... We hear this all the time. I, we, we just don't have time to have patients in beds in the ER plugging this place up. When in fact, it's an emergency. And, and there's some studies that show that the amount of time somebody needs to be in your ER with you know, with this kind of an issue is about the same as the average person that's in the ER, which is right around three and a half hours. So we can get somebody started on bup, and I think sometimes it's quicker now with low dosing and uh, such. It, it can be an in and out kind of thing. So, um, and even at the average, it's still around three and a half hours, which is the same as the average ER. It's actually patient. less. Slightly. So. Hey, that's 20 minutes. That's not long. 20 minutes is a long time. Anyway, and then there's this fear, like, they don't know. I mean, we can joke about it now, but we didn't know. We did our first Suboxone patient. You're going to hear me say this a million times. Uh, don't like, say it again. We admitted Please. this due to the ICU. We were that afraid. Like, so, because we just don't know. And I don't know why this seems any more scary than the first mm. time you prescribe insulin, because that's scary. More scary. It actually has worse complications if you do it wrong than mm. buprenorphine, if you think about it. Um, and so it's just that unknown because it just has this whole taboo stigmatized thing. I think how scary it is when you give somebody adenosine. Yeah. And you're just like, whoa. And then all of a sudden they go into normal rhythm. But and they first die for like a half a second. Yeah. It's like, and, but, but this doesn't do that. So, right. This is like giving them water. 
I guess. Okay, sort of. maybe not. Maybe not that, especially if they're on fentanyl. But anyway, so just not knowing. Plus, again, the fear, like, are you afraid of opioid use disorder? Do you have a lot of stigma in you? Or are you just, yeah. It's just the education component. I think, too, you know, it's this whole thing about making sure hospitals have it. And I think rurally, there have, we've run into hospitals that didn't actually carry it. So I think that's another thing that is a, a lot of education that we need to make sure that that facilities have these medications available when needed. Um, and, and a little bit about communication. I think often the stories surrounding situations like this tend to be very negative when we're talking about patients overdosing or coming in with uh, addiction issues. And I think we need to kind of change that. Um, and, and I think it's going to be the younger physicians and providers that come out and have a, a different perspective of this. They're going to be able to kind of change that narrative, uh, teach some of the other people, uh, you know, how we should be taking care of these patients. So, Well, and it can be protocol based, you know, and protocolized. Is that a word? I'm pretty sure it's not. It should be. Mm. Copyright right next to ain't in the dictionary because apparently that exists in the dictionary. So let's move to why we should do this, Dr. (laughs) Bell. I hate to interrupt you. No, you don't. Uh, You're right. Okay. So why do it? I mean, like we said at the very beginning is that a lot of patients end up there. It is the largest patient access point. How often have you seen a patient that you then see in clinic long-term, but when was the last time they actually came in for a primary care visit versus how many ER visits have they had in the last year? Yeah. It's like not even kind of comparable. And I think, you know, we're looking at how can we really make an impact? How can we save lives, decrease death, and and really decrease the number of patients with OUD issues coming to our ER? So I I really think that's that's a lot of it. And, and you know, in the end, what do the bean counters care about? It's saving money. Well, we can do that too. We can do that too. And I think, you know, for the the nurses who are the ones spending the most FaceTime with these patients, you know, seeing a patient who just got Narcan or that's not pretty. They're in florid withdrawal. They don't want that patient to keep coming back because that patient is not very kind to them in that moment. But if you can give them Suboxone at that moment or a buprenorphine product, all of a sudden, they're princesses. Do we need to relieve and discuss the neurobiology stuff that is important for people to be educated about? You know, I don't think we really need to, like, no. kick a dead horse. But basically, people just need to be educated on why addiction is a disease, not a choice. Explain that. Yeah. Um, and really try to understand that a patient isn't choosing to do this. They're choosing to, like, listen to the brain that's inside of them. So there is no choice. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And we already talked about the CARE Act, so I'm we not did. really going to talk about that. But really, here's, here's your the data. Big thing. Like, this I is love, my favorite. I thing. love this. This is what knocked it out of the park when we did this talk earlier. And yeah, your original Babe Ruth. Yeah, I mean, I hit that ball right out of the park uh, because preventing overdose really, let's face it, that's the goal. But if you look at there's there's actually great studies that show that mortality following more, did I say that correctly? You no, you said it really funny, but mortality. You did. Um, following a non-fatal opioid overdose in the next five years is 18%. But that's not the scary part. The first year, it's over nine. Yeah. The first year is almost 10%. So is that exponential then? Because I, th- I mean, obviously, I think it just fades. Data. You know, if they don't die in that first year, there's less death in the next if four years. If you wouldn't have interrupted me, like, We're, what if they have two overdoses in that first year, both non-fatal? Yeah, I don't have that data. I know, but I mean, that's where I was going. Okay, we'll find it. Clearly, it doesn't even matter because that is ridiculously high. Yeah. And really, when you look at it... It's like Russian roulette. You know, what's the first step to fixing this problem? It's, you know, obviously getting your ER to do bup. Second is that referral 
and making sure that that person has an appointment when they leave. Why, Heather? Well, because if you do not have that appointment when they leave, the chances of them showing up is a lot less. Yeah. And this isn't a person you say, okay, here's a number, call them tomorrow. No, you need to help facilitate that appointment for them. Well, and here's the proof. So there was a study done called Retention in Treatment After Emergency Department Initiated Buprenorphine. This was in 2021, Heather. You were just out of high school. And it was by... 2021. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Jennings et al. Uh, So this was in the Journal of Emergency Medicine. I mean, this is right from the the ER people. Um, And so what they did is they, they... in, they did inductions in these patients, and the patient then spoke with a peer recovery specialist. So after this happened, 77% of those patients went to their first visit at a community provider. So, what? 77%. Like, You're I saying don't know almost if you, 80%? Almost 80%. And I don't know if you can get everybody who shows up in an ER that has congestive heart failure, 80% of them <laughs> just show up in clinic. Right? <laughs> That's probably I mean, true. think about it. Some people are like, oh, I feel fine. I'm not going to go see my doctor. But yeah. yet this group is. And at 30 days, you know, 43%. And this is a group that just had an overdose. So... I mean, I think that's pretty good. If you look at the retention in patients who just come to your clinic and get and trying to get help, that's you know maybe sixty to sixty-five percent. So this is not bad. Um, you know, there was five over five hundred people in that study. And we, I mean, they also looked at social worker engagement. Um, pretty much the same data, a little bit less as far as that first follow-up, but overall. If you have that seamless conversation, and I'm not just saying that every single ER should just go do this right now. And I, I mean, yes, I do think that, but it is okay to ask for help and assistance. And, you know, even our provider that we were just, that I mentioned at the beginning, who is in an ER, Dr. A, you know who you are if you're listening to this. We love that you embrace this and are still doing it. Even though he does it and was wavered, it is okay to still call and be like, so now we have fentanyl out there, and how would you like me to do this? And there were times when he would start a patient, he'd call me, and I would just call that prescription in to save him pain in the butt the next day and the patient having to come back. But it's just like this communication and getting out of your darn silos. So what are we looking for? Well, seamless care. We want, we want it to move from the, from the ER to the clinic. We want people to stop dying. And and I think... That should have been your number one. Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is pretty simple. Uh, We have a way to really make an impact out there with all you ER people and, excuse me, ED people, um, and and get these people retained in in these programs in the community. So it needs to be a welcoming environment. We We need to really make an effort. Right. I don't know. Let's make the effort. Heather, make an effort to change <laughs> oh, this. Change, change. Yeah, I'm, I'll, goodness I'll get sake. on that tomorrow. Okay, That's everybody, it. thank you so much. And let Casey take over. All right. Thanks, Case.
was pleasant to join you this hour. Though I likely won't meet you again, I surely won't meet you again. Fare you well, you terrible stranger. Though child of God you may be You can rattle off all of your promises But not a one could I ever believe Not a one could I ever believe There's an Surely won't meet you